the songs. I love the variety and, uh, yeah, and uh, some new stuff and some old stuff. And, yeah, great job, great job. Thank you. You know, those, uh, that last song, You're the Prince of Peace and I Will Live My Life for You. That rolls off of our tongues rather easily until it comes to actually living our life for him. And we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But I have, a, I have a biblical story for you, very, very biblical. And, and it refers to the Word of God, which Hebrews 4.12 says about the Word of God, that uh, it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Well, the story has it that this very elderly, feeble old lady Heard a noise in the middle of the night in her house. She lived alone. And she went down and there in the kitchen was a big burly guy loaded down with all the things he was going to steal from her. She had no weapon. But she held out her hand towards him. And she said, Acts 2.38. The man froze right on the spot. In fact, gave her time to run to the phone and dial 911. And he stayed frozen. And the cops arrived. And here's this odd scene. Little feeble old lady, big burly thief, standing there, immobilized. And uh, they, asked the, they asked the lady, so what's, what's happening here? What, what did you do? I quoted scripture to him. And then they looked at the thief and said, so what was it about the scripture that kind of just froze you in place? And he said, what scripture? I thought she said that she had an axe and two thirty-eights. I thought that was cute. So the word of God can be used in all kinds of ways. And uh, ladies, if you ever get, you know, invaded, just remember that story. Quote them, Acts 2.38. I want to begin with an encounter I had years ago with the most reprehensible, unattractive, repulsive human being I have ever, ever encountered in my life. And... This is an absolutely true story which ends up not making me look very good. We spent time, 19 months in fact, in West Africa in the country of Mali. And a few days before Christmas, the second year that we were there, we hear a voice calling out at our door, which was a very African way. Instead of knocking, they, they call out. And so I go to the door... And there's this, there's this man there, black man, and we went to Africa very excited because all of, our, all of our experiences with Africans, or with black people, let me put it that way, uh, had been very, very positive. And we were excited to meet lots of them. And uh, we met some amazing, amazing people. But not this guy. This man was 
unattractive in every way you can think of. First of all, he was a beggar. And how he got to our door, I still don't know, because we had dogs on our yard who hated, this, this sounds terrible, but it, it was true, hated black people. And we were all white missionaries who lived in this one walled-in yard. And those dogs would go after these characters that tried to get in and uh, do harm to us. They were prejudiced. They were biased dogs, uh, very racist dogs. And that was weird. But um, somehow he got to our door, and I, I'm scrambling in my head, what did he do, put a hex on these dogs or what? Because they always reacted when a stranger walked into the yard, especially a black man. But there he was, and he had attitude. But he looked awful. He had a terrible, terrible uh, wound on the side of his head and ear. I think, I think his one ear was pretty much chopped off. And he had obviously not had any kind of serious medical care after whatever had happened to him. Turned out later he had been attacked with a machete, big, big machete. And his one ankle was an open, open festering wound. Uh, just incredible. He was poorly dressed. He was obviously a very poor man, very dirty, uh, very smelly. But the worst thing about the man was his attitude. Uh, there were many beggars in the country of Mali, very poor country. And we encountered these almost daily. And most of them were very polite and very nice. And, uh, and we liked to help as many of them as we possibly could. But there were a few. And this guy was the worst of the beggars that we had ever encountered in terms of just his attitude. He had found out somehow that I was a pastor and he used that against me. Basically to say, you're a pastor, you have to help me. Well, I was sorely tempted to send the guy packing. But we Westerners are very sentimental at Christmas time. It's when we, of course, celebrate the greatest gift of all to us, the arrival of the Lord Jesus. And he thinks of me as a pastor. Well, I can't. What do I do? So I decide I'm going to help him. And he had, a, he had a grocery list of things he wanted from me. And uh, I was able to actually come up with some things uh, to help him. He was not grateful. He was not appreciative. It was almost like he was angry that I didn't give him more. But finally, he left. And I, in my heart of hearts, hoped I would never see this guy again. Because, yeah, he was just a disgusting person. I'll tell you the rest of the story at the end of my message because it connects very well with the passage that I want us to look at this morning, which is Jonah chapter 4. The Word of God has in it things which, if the Word of God was simply a man-made document, just Ordinary people had written this. 
There are certain things they would never have included in the scriptures. And the book of Jonah is probably one of them. What's with Jonah anyway? Chapter 4 tells us not only about the fact that uh, we find out in chapter 1 that he ran away when God asked him to do something. And after God does his thing, this is what happens with Jonah. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry because God, in the last verse of the previous chapter, tells us he saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah, but Jonah, this prophet of God, was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, presumably the city of Nineveh. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Very interesting. God orchestrates worms and where they go and what they do sometimes. And uh, earlier we see that God provided a big fish to swallow Jonah. And... Uh, the worm chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about the great city? And that's the end of the book. We don't know what happens with Jonah. Does he finally ever come around and respond and say, Yeah, God, you have a right to have compassion on these people. Right now, as we sit here this morning, uh, there's a war going on between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Very interesting that Gaza, that little portion beside Israel, uh, used to be the land of the Philistines. Apparently there's some kind of uh, connection between Palestine and the Philistines which we know about from scripture, who were one of the enemies of Israel. Uh, so what is happening today in that land, of course, is nothing new. And Assyria, Nineveh being the capital uh, of Assyria at the time of Jonah, which was about 800 to 750 years before Christ, uh, they, were, they were the same kind of enemy to Israel. They had attacked Israel multiple, multiple times. And this had persisted over many, many years. They wanted to destroy Israel. Just like what's happening today. 
It's an old, old story. And, uh, and of all the crazy things that God would ask one of his prophets to do, is I want you to go to that city of the hated enemies of Israel, those people who have pillaged, destroyed, raped, stolen, and messed with you and tried to wipe you off the map. I want you to go to them, and I, I have a message through you to them. Now, what's interesting about the message, because we read about it in, uh, in right the beginning, verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. He was not told to go to Nineveh and talk to them about this loving, merciful, compassionate God. He, went, he was to go and tell them, God's going to wipe you guys out completely. Well, can you imagine the thoughts that went through Jonah's head? First of all, probably some sheer terror because he figured, for sure, this is going to cost me my life. But secondly, as we find out later, it was because he was afraid that the message of coming judgment, which basically came down to a timeline, in 40 days, God's going to wipe you guys out. That there was a possibility, because that was the message from God, that they might respond positively to that message and repent and turn away from their evil ways, which, of course, is exactly what happens. And so he runs away. Well, chapter 2 tells us that uh, while he's in the big fish, which God arranged to arrive just at the right moment when he gets thrown overboard so he doesn't drown, and uh, I don't know if, that, if Jonah in that big fish um, gave him a tummy ache or uh, did God orchestrate the tummy ache and finally the big fish vomits, barfs Jonah up out on the shore. But in the, in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays a wonderful prayer. It seems like Jonah is a very godly, godly man and uh, kind of says all the right things in his prayer. And it looks like the big fish thing has turned him around from his, his uh, rotten, run-away-from-God attitude. And so he reluctantly agrees to go when God sort of renews the call to him uh, to go to this great city and preach against it. But they turn from their evil ways. He takes three days, he walks around, and all he, all he says to them apparently is, God's going to wipe you out. God's going to destroy you in 40 days. Well, what's 40 days? I mean, that's just like a month and a half or whatever. I mean, that wasn't very long that they had. But there is, is a out-and-out out repentance on the part of the citizens, not just the leadership, but every one, it says, of the citizens repent and decide, which means turning away from Sin from evil. Jonah can't handle it. Jonah can't handle it. He did not like these people. He wanted them dead. He wanted God to destroy them, wipe them out. And God had other ideas. Now, what's interesting in, the, in chapter 4 is 
Jonah says, oh Lord, this is his prayer to the Lord. Is this not what I said? That you, God, are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He's got his theology straight. Which of us as Christians would disagree with that statement about God? We believe that. We believe all through scripture uh, we find, and, and of course even in our lives, we find out through experiences that God is a gracious and compassionate God. And, and God has turned around lives that were incredibly lost, incredibly dark. And we would agree with that. We would agree with Jonah. That's the kind of God you are. But when God demonstrates that towards Nineveh and the Assyrians, and I think the message to us is also this. It's not just about Hamas, the terrorist organization in Gaza, attacking Israel. It's about individuals that we may meet along the way in our lives. It may refer to special tasks that God calls us to in our lives, and we discover in carrying out that task, uh, there's people that we encounter, and maybe they're people in your family, your extended family, who have done great harm uh, to others in the family. People who are really, really hard, hard to like. And so we take our theology about God, which is correct, But we basically say, God, just like Jonah did, you can't extend that grace and that compassion to this person that I've come face to face with and been offended by and hurt by and who I would really like to be gone. And it's a... It's a reality. And the question for us in this passage, as it was for Jonah, is is a question from God. Do you have a right to be angry? Do you have a right in face of who I am as God? Not just a fellow human being, but as God Almighty, do I not have the right to extend kindness and mercy to this person, this group of people, whoever they might be, however evil they might be. Do I not have the right? And Jonah said, no, God, you don't have the right. I disagree with you. I mean, the, the audaciousness of his arguing with God, telling God you can't do what you obviously have done and used me to bring that about. Oh, yay. What a, what a dilemma. Isn't it amazing that this, the story ends right there? By the way, about um, a little more than 100 years later, the prophet Nahum actually prophesied the demise of Nineveh and Assyria, which actually happened uh, later on. So the, their repentance was maybe short-lived. I, we don't know how long it lasted, that they had turned away from their evil ways. But um, 
I think part of the great purpose of God with Jonah, but also because it's recorded in Scripture, it's for us as well, is to cause us to recognize the amazing, amazing grace and love of our God. That it can extend to the worst of souls that we might encounter in our lives or hear about. And, of course, there's massive protests going on um, in support of Israel, but also in support of Hamas, this terrorist organization, who's willing to do anything. And their stated goal, of course, is to wipe Israel out completely. And so Jews everywhere, including in our own country, are terrified right now. And the amazing thing is that some of these Jews, who were very progressive and joined all these woke causes uh, that the left uh, promotes, and they were part of that, all of a sudden, they are finding out they are hated simply because they're Jews. They thought that they held all the right positions to be acceptable to sort of these left extremists. But no, you're a Jew. You're worthy of extermination. We want to get rid of you. And it's an amazing phenomenon. One time I had the privilege of being in a a museum that had to do with Israel in Detroit, Michigan. And in that museum was a large circular, semicircular room. And on the wall, they had painted a timeline of the history of Israel. And on that timeline were, at period, various times and years, uh, attacks that were made against Israel. We all know about Hitler and what he did with the Jews, but I could not believe the hundreds of times that the Jewish people have been attacked in history. And it's often this sort of mindless hatred of the Jewish people. And the question, of course, is why? Why are these people hated so much? I once saw a list of Nobel Prize winners comparing Jews to Muslims. The list of Jewish Nobel Prize winners in all different kinds of disciplines was incredibly long. This is a nation of, uh, currently of about 9 million people. I think worldwide there's maybe 16 million Jews. I mean, this is a teeny portion of, of the world's population. But their list of Nobel Prize winners is unbelievable. So many of them have, have won in their various disciplines. And beside it, the list of Muslims who have won a Nobel Prize is like super short, maybe five or six of them, compared to hundreds of Jews. What is this? This is crazy. But, but it appears, from, from a biblical perspective, the, the reason for the hatred, it's ultimately it's a hatred against God. And, of course, God raised this nation up not because they were great in number. It says that in Scripture. Not because they were somehow better than everybody else. But he raised them up to be a special vehicle for him to do his saving, redeeming work through Christ and in the world. And uh, that's why they're hated. And Satan, of course, is behind the whole thing. And Satan, uh, Satan longs like some of these 
his followers to destroy Israel, to destroy the Jewish people and get rid of them altogether. Can you imagine if right now in history, while this war is going on, there's evangelical Christians that are Jewish Christians, Messianic Christians, they're often called, who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And uh, they're living in Israel. We have a good friend, Ruth, who uh, just came back from an educational visit to Israel. But what if God puts his hand on one of those Messianic Christians, Jewish people, and says, Hey, I'd like you to go over to Gaza, and I'd like you to preach against it. I'd like you to go in there and, and connect with all those Hamas terrorists and tell them that in 40 days, God's going to wipe you out. How long do you think that person would last? And uh, well, what is, what is that person going to think if God does this? I was talking to a man uh, just last Sunday, and uh, he's a friend who has amazing fearlessness about doing what God asks him to do. He's been called crazy. Uh, his sanity has been questioned by other Christians. He does things which I've never heard other Christians ever do. But he believes that what he does is all for the sake of the gospel and to get the message of Christ out to people. And uh, I was able to talk to him uh, afterwards, and uh, I, had, uh, I had raised with him in our conversation uh, something that I encountered when I was teaching at the Bible College, uh, Life of Christ. And there's, there's this section where Jesus pronounces woe on the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders. And, I mean, he blasts them something fierce. So I would ask my class, so do you think um, we should ever do that? If our religious leaders go astray in some way, or acting hypocritically, uh, should we ever challenge them? Well, he spoke up. He told me he was, he was on the board of his church. He's not anymore. But uh, he accused them as a board of being Pharisees. Wow, wow. That did not apparently go over too well. But, uh, but what if, what if God asks you to do something that's going to create opposition, accusation, is going to create fear in you. When I first became a pastor, uh, one of the biggest fears I had was somebody's going to die and I'm going to have to deal with the family. I'm going to have to do a funeral. And I, I'm serious, I was... I was terrified of the prospect of this. And of course, eventually, it did happen. But throughout my ministry career, which was almost exclusively with Christians, either in churches, Bible school, missions, uh, I worked with Christians. I love Christians. I love fellow Christians. I'm looking at some of them right now. <laughs> and, uh, and I thank God for that experience. But, but I often felt a certain level of guilt I guess would probably be the right word for it, that I had so little opportunity uh, to connect with those who are not believers. 
you know, it happened occasionally through, throughout our lives, but we were busy, 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 looking after the flock, looking after the believers. And uh, it was our primary job, of course. And uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't regret that. We didn't uh, argue with God about that. But I did complain, and I think God heard my complaint, which wasn't necessarily directed at him. It was just kind of a generalized eh, little guilt here. Uh, I don't have much opportunity to connect with non-believers. So in, in 2014, I retire from being a full-time pastor. And uh, we moved back up here because our kids are here. And, uh, and I uh, thought, well, you know, we need a place to live, which God provided very graciously. Wonderful place for us. We're still there in Sexsmith. And... Uh, I thought, you know, maybe I should do what some of my friends have done. I should, I should uh, see if I can get, get some work in the funeral business. So uh, I phoned up Gene Krauss. At, uh, he was one of the owners then of uh, Oliver's. And I said, Gene, you got any work for me? And his answer essentially was, because he, he knew me already, but he says, uh, he says well, yeah, get your, get your apartment set up, and uh, when you're done that, just give us a call, we'll put you to work. That was nine and a half years ago. And pretty soon, they call me and they say, uh, we got this family, mama's died, will you, are you willing to do the funeral? Sure. So I meet with this family, find out in probably 95% of the funerals I've done, which is well over 300 now, um, these are not what I, we would describe as believers. Some of them had some religion in their background of some sort. But the reason I get those funerals is because they don't have a church or a pastor to do the funeral for their loved one. They need somebody. They want somebody. And so uh, I get the job. So guess what? I have met hundreds of non-believers in the last nine and a half years. And, uh, and with quite a number of them, I've had opportunity not only uh, with one death, but sometimes multiple deaths. One family, I've done four funerals for that family. And uh, I think the last one we did, we were leaving the Grand Prairie Cemetery, and I looked at them, and they looked at me, and we said, we've got to stop meeting this way. But you know, I didn't mind meeting again with them, because I got to know them on a first-name basis. I got to learn about them. And uh, we are surrounded by a lot of folks who are, from a human perspective, good folks. But they don't know the Lord. They don't know the gospel. They all believe their loved ones in heaven and they're going to see them again. Which, which makes no sense whatsoever. Because if God has no place in your life here, in this life, why would you want to spend eternity with him? Uh, that's just... That's nuts. And yet, that's what they all think is going to happen after their loved one dies. But it's been such an incredible opportunity for me uh, to have God answer my complaint, which he heard, obviously, and knew about, and said, okay, you want some non-believers in your life? Here they are, by the hundreds. <laughs> and, uh, and it's been great. And I'm so thankful to God for that opportunity. But what about the people that cross our paths who hurt us, who offend us, who we find revolting, disgusting people. 
What about them? And I think the message of Jonah is a message to examine our hearts. That is the deepest part of who we are when it comes to those objectionable people. And we all have them sooner or later. And some of those people we encounter even in the church. I could tell you stories of of some of those kinds of people that I've encountered where I'm a pastor and some of those people I would have loved to just haul off and sock them in the face. Uh, And, you know, I'm restrained because I knew it wouldn't look good on my resume. (laughs) And uh, when we adopted our sons, our first son is a... His birth mother was Cree Indian, so he's Métis. Father, we think, was Irish. He's a unique guy, a unique combination. But Jerry was talking to some lady from the church we were pastoring at the time, and uh, her response to us adopting this kid, well, you gotta, you got to watch out for those Native people because they will steal you blind. Basically, you're taking a huge gamble, a huge risk here by adopting this native kid, or Métis kid. And uh, Jerry comes home, tells me this story, and he said, oh man, I'm sure glad, I'm sure glad it was you that she told this to, not me. Because I don't think what I would have done in response to that comment wouldn't have uh, gone over very well with the elders of our church or the people of our church. Uh, it was, yeah, it was frustrating. It was disgusting. But, but to examine our hearts when it comes to those difficult people that we encounter. And let me, let me finish the story about the beggar who came to our door. He came back. Oh, he came back many times, in fact. Um, you know, probably because I helped him. He was poor. He was hungry. I'd give him food. Give him sometimes some clothing. And I find out that where the guy was living, um, and it wasn't good, but there were, there were lice. There were fleas there. And my wife is, is a very sensitive person, much more than me, uh, in reading people. And I was, I was very uncomfortable with this guy. His name was Stuart Barnes, by the way. But my wife, oh, she just, she just was horrified that we had to connect with this guy. But he kept coming. So one day I saw, thought, well, I'll do the Christian thing. I'm going to give this guy a Bible. I had, had some Bibles. He was an English speaker from Liberia. And he started reading the Bible. And he'd come back and he'd say, uh, so um, I've been reading in the New Testament here, and uh, who's this Beelzebub guy? Who is is that? So we would have this interesting conversation about Satan and, and the enemy. This went on for months. And finally one day, um, my wife was at a, at a ladies' Bible study. She was not at home. And there Stuart comes to my door. I decided, okay, I'm going to invite him into our house. Never had before. And had him sit down at our kitchen table. And I sat down there with him. And uh, I shared the gospel with him. And uh, 
quite honestly, I was reluctant about doing that because this character that I was so uncomfortable with, my wife even more so, he might become a Christian. And then I got to, then I got to love him as a brother in Christ, for heaven's sake. So it was kind of a reluctant evangelist. And, uh, but I shared the gospel with him. Well, sometime later, he started coming to our, our Sunday evening English fellowship that I was the pastor of. And he comes to my door one day and he says, uh, can, I, can I confess my sins to you? I think he thought of me as kind of like a Catholic priest. And I said, sure, that's fine, but you need to know that you need to confess those sins to God first and foremost, but you can confess them to me. And I said to him, and I don't quite know why I did this, but I said, I will write down on a piece of paper uh, what you confessed to me. And little did I know what was coming. But I said, uh, when you believe that Jesus, because he died on the cross for your sins, has forgiven you, we'll take this paper out back to, we had a, a burn pit, the back of our property, and we'll, we'll light this list on fire and burn it, symbolizing uh, the forgiveness in Christ. Well, I honestly didn't think anything would happen, but let me just tell you a little bit of what he confessed to me. The very first sin he confessed, uh, or oh, he had told me already he was a, he was a thief, on the docks of Monrovia, Liberia. That's how he, how he survived. That's where he had been attacked with the machete. And, uh, and so thievery, robber, robbery, was kind of his main way of surviving. But he confessed to me, first off, that he had almost murdered a bunch of other thieves like him because what they would do is they would sneak on board some of the ships that came into harbor there and they would hide on the ship somewhere so that when the ship went out to sea they knew that they would inevitably be discovered by the captain or some of the sailors and sometimes the captain would actually hire them to work on the ship and so it was a way of getting a job but he said we got on board this one ship and we discovered me and this other guy we discovered that uh, under a hatch nearby where we were hiding uh, was a whole group of five or six different people like us trying to do the same thing. So we snuck out in the night and we locked their hatch down in hopes that they would die in there. And because there were so many of us that we said our chances are very little of actually getting, getting hired when we get discovered. So we wanted to kill them. Well, the, the, the list of sins that came after that was even worse. Uh, the abuse of children, sexual abuse of children, uh, witchcraft stuff. Oh, it was an unbelievable list. I had never met anybody in my life with, uh, with a list of stuff like this in his life. This is the kind of guy he was. And there was a kind of evil that just kind of exuded from this guy. So the fact that he was reading the Bible I had given him and talking about confessing his sins, hmm, yikes. 
this guy might actually accept the gospel. What am I going to do then? Because quite honestly, I still did not want this guy to become my brother in Christ. He was just a nasty guy. We want nice people to come into the kingdom. People we can get along with and good people uh, is who we want. Not these kind of fringe weirdos. And, uh, and finally, finally, long story short, but he came to me one day and he confessed that he now believed that Jesus had died for his sins and that he was forgiven for all he had done because of Jesus. Ay, 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 now what? I had promised him we'll burn this list, which I had kept. So we went out back. It was right around noon, I remember. It was very hot. And we stood by this hole in the ground where we burned stuff. And... Um, I stood beside him, I lit it on fire and I dropped it in, we watched it burn up. And then for the very first time, I reached out and I touched Stuart on the shoulder, said, I'm going to pray for you now. That was the first time I had had any kind of physical contact with this guy. Again, because of my resistance to this man and who he was. And I start praying for him. And I realized in the middle of my prayer that God had changed Stuart. And I thank God for that. But I realized God had changed me because I was Jonah. I had the heart of Jonah. Oh, sure, I would have said all these things that Jonah did about God. It's loving and gracious. But when it came to this man, no way, God. No way. And then God saves this guy. And I realized what this was about, what Jonah's story was about, what this experience was about for me, And I would suggest to you this morning that if you have people that you have in your life that you work with, family members, neighbors, there are neighbors who are neighbors from hell. I've heard stories from Christians. Maybe the reason for that is simply to help you to understand where your heart is. That the words of God being gracious and compassionate. Oh yeah, you can sing those words and, and mean it, but is God, through your experience, through the story of Jonah, is God saying to you, um, maybe you have the heart of Jonah, and maybe you need, like Jonah needed, to repent of that. I want to give you a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was that Russian dissident who uh, wrote this big fat book, which I have, my son has, um, about the, the terrible death camp, camps that the communists ran in Russia for so many years. But this is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were e- evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them 
from the rest of us and destroy them. But then this very important line, he says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? Like Jonah, sometimes we say no. I'm not willing. I'm not willing. I'm not willing. I know who you are, God. I know what you're about. But not in this case. I'm not willing. And God says, hmm. Perhaps, um, like the sailors on the boat. I don't know if you ever noticed this in the story. After they chucked Jonah overboard, uh, it says, um, they cried to the Lord, Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. They threw him overboard. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They made vows to him. And then the Ninevites, when they repent, ah, they're more godly than Jonah was. They repent in dust and ashes. King proclaimed a proclamation. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So here you have these evil Ninevites repenting, these godless pagan sailors, likely, uh, who obviously turned to the Lord. And then there's Jonah. And then there's Jonah. And we're left with it unresolved with Jonah. Does he ever come around? Does he ever repent? We don't know. We don't know. But it's really the same question for each of us in regards to those difficult situations God puts us in sometimes that shows where our heart is. Will we repent of our attitude uh, towards some of those very unlikable people that may come across our paths? I'm looking forward someday in heaven to meet my new friend, Stuart Barnes, celebrating, worshiping God with me I think that will be an incredibly wonderful, awesome moment to recognize that had I done, had I done what my heart wanted at the first, I would have turned that guy away and maybe he would have never had a chance to know the truth of my God. And I thank God that I was faithful, even reluctantly faithful, uh, as I was because God needed to change this Jonah's heart. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we know that the line of evil between evil and good runs through our hearts as well.
we know, and if we're honest, sometimes we really, really, really dislike certain people that come across our path. Father, help us to truly examine, honestly examine our hearts and see where we share the heart of Jonah in some of those situations and need to turn away and repent of that because we are undervaluing who you are, God. We are, we are saying with our mouths that you're gracious and compassionate, but by our actions, we're saying the opposite, that you should bow to our will and take out these people. So, Father, uh, be gracious to us, and by your Spirit, give us the willingness to repent when we need to repent. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.